0: what's up candy lickers pleased to meet you nice to know me what you doing you're listening to another edition of cassio's cut we have a, a very special for me personally episode today a little out of the norm hope you guys will bear with me hope you enjoy it as well uh, i kind of wanted to do this as a passion project just uh, to put my family history out there on audio a little bit uh, what i'm going to be doing today is reading an article Uh, That was published September 2nd, 1944, in the Saturday Evening Post. It was written by Captain Robert B. Potts, and it was about his experience in World War II. And the reason I decided to read it is uh, we had a copy of this Saturday Evening Post in my family as I was growing up. And we all read it because uh, it talks about an experience that my grandfather was in as well with... Uh, Captain Hotz. So, I was going to read this. It is out of the norm. Uh, you can go find it. I, I'm going to post a link to it on all our social media if you would like to go uh, check it out. Uh, but like I said, this is this means a lot to me, probably more than it will you guys, but it is a fascinating World War II story uh, that if you're into that, you might enjoy, and you can go read look at uh, some of the pictures yourself. But uh, thank you for bearing with me, and uh, we're going to read this September 2nd, 1944, Saturday Evening Post. Uh, It's called Our Incredible Ride Home by Captain Robert B. Potts. Um, Says the setting somewhere in China. The leather-jacketed crews filled in and sprawled on the rough wooden benches facing the big colored map of Indochina on the briefing room wall. Everybody bulged with equipment. Pistols, canteens, cartridge clips, jungle knives, money belts, and mousset bags. Each crewman was dressed to his taste, khakis, woolens, summer flying coveralls, and most of them wore chute silk scarfs around their necks, tied like an ascot. No two caps were alike, baseball caps, ski caps, Chinese army caps with a spiked white star, green mechanics caps, goggled helmets, but rarely the regulation army headgear. The crews are part of the Eagle Squadron. Those cannon-carrying Mitchells are now a familiar sight to the conglomerate population of French Indochina. For months, they have been complicating life for Japanese garrisons in occupied territory, making deep penetrations under the cover of thick weather, darting in under low ceilings at treetop height for quick slashes at the target and then vanishing in the low-hanging clouds. Railroad bridges, rolling stock, coal piles, docks, ships, Industrial distilleries and anything else that helped the Japs exploit the country felt their heavy machine guns cannons and bombs After a couple of dozen missions, there were a few main railroad bridges left in the Saigon Hanoi locay line Lauke line, excuse me. I'll probably butcher a few of these so bear with me the Bridges left on the Saigon-Hanoi-Laoké line, key to all overland transportation in the company. Our target today was a three-span railroad bridge across the Red River. It was a routine mission. Briefing was short and to the point. The intelligence officer gave us the target information. The meteorologist offered his prediction, weather bad enough to be good for our purpose. The CO stepped up for a final word. He was a lean linkside major who fights flies and looks like a modern Robin Hood. Let's not fool with this one, he said. Make one pass and get out. You have thousand pounders, they should do the job. Let's scratch this target off our list. Sounded simple enough. The intelligence officer added a footnote on flak, one battery south of bridge. There was a change in pilots as the briefing broke up. Our new pilot was Lieutenant Jesse Weber of Bradford, Pennsylvania. He is built like a Notre Dame tackle and is a veteran of 33 Eagle Squadron missions. This was his first show since his return from a rest camp. Our navigator, Lieutenant Lawrence Thaler of Morristown, Tennessee, also knew his way around. He had to bail out and walk back from his first combat mission in China. Sergeant Jerome Weigel of Trenton, New Jersey, was engineer gunner in the top turret. Here's where my family comes in. Sergeant Leonard Mitchell. Of Gadsden, Alabama, a small, quietly competent man was the radio gunner, and I was scheduled for the tail turret as photo gunner. There is no copilot on our type of bomber. The formation was soon in solid overcast, and then emerged into scattered clouds above the solid layer, with another thick gray overcast above. Except for the wisp of clouds and the rough air, there was no sense of motion; only the familiar feeling of suspension in space. I crawled back into the tail turret with the aerial camera and tested the turret operation and manual controls. Charging the twin 50s, I had to clear a short round from one gun. A short, reassuring test burst sent cartridge clips and casings floating back into the clouds. Our estimated time of arrival had passed when the flight leader began to let down through a hole in the clouds below. We emerged into a narrow river valley flanked by green, heavily wooded mountains. To the north, the mountains are black and jagged, the crest lost in the leaden haze. Valley and river widened and hills melted as we flew. We were buzzing along now in loose formation at treetop height, weaving across the flat valley with the cloud deck less than 2,000 feet above us and vague scud drifting lower. Small chance of fighters on patrol in that weather. The country just below was a green blur. Behind and on all sides, it stood out in sharp detail. It was like looking at the ocean floor through a glass-bottom boat. Hills were covered with lush, green, tropical growth. We passed neat, star-shaped French forts flying the nostalgic tricolor. Thatched, anamite villages on stilts along the hillsides. And white, flower-covered villas with great-walked gardens and spreading shade trees. They looked like great places to spend a weekend. The river relaxed in long, lazy meanders, split, by gleaming white sandbars. Natives were pulling lumber rafts and sapana downstream. Fishermen were standing knee-deep in the water sanding with large nets. Women washed clothes along the sandy beaches. Nobody even looked up as we roared over them. The broad flat valley was covered with the brilliant vibrant green of ripening rice. We passed age-grade European churches with spires and buttresses nestling in the groves of palm, and tiny geometric white settlements. The air coming through the vents was hot and steamy. This country looked too lush and beautiful for war. We flew over a fighter strip with natives working on the runway. There was no enemy planes or flag. The navigator warned us over the telephone, over the interphone, that the target was in sight. Over the turret top, I could see a town with a white tall smokestack and beyond it in the black arch spans of the bridge. I depressed the guns for strafing and checked the camera. The cherry red ring of the gun sight was glowing against the blurred background of the bright green palms and patties. We circled wide the bridge and came in on our run the length of the structure. As we leveled out and built up speed, the palm tree tufts looked close enough to snatch a coconut. The pilot yelled over the interphone, Here we go! Strafe them! Let them have it! The ship shuddered under the fire of our guns. Cartridge clips and casings began to float past the tail. I felt heavier shudders. and thought the cannon was firing. A black square drifted among the cartridge casings. It looked like a picture frame. It was the top hatch of the cockpit. More pieces of debris went sailing by. We were over the bridge, and I was strafing the approaches for the ship following us in. I grabbed the camera as we broke away to the right and began to take pictures of the bridge. I could see the second ship make its run and drop its bombs. Nothing happened. For a split second and then a great tall column of black smoke and dirt shot into the air from the south abutment. The southern span lifted slowly in the air like a drawbridge being raised and then dropped in the water. I was still taking pictures of the wrecked bridge, but Sergeant Mitchell tugged on my shoulder and motioned me forward. I was irritated. I thought I was getting good pictures of an excellent job of a bridge blasting. The last exposures showing the wrecked bridge were were ruined, excuse me, the last exposures showing the wrecked bridge were ruined. I crawled out of the turret through the tunnel to the radio compartment. Mitchell had already disappeared through the Bombay tunnel leading forward. I climbed through the tunnel toward the cockpit. Sergeant Weagle reported later that Mitchell was on his way back to the radio compartment. When I started forward, we must have passed each other in that narrow passage, ordinarily a tight squeeze for one man. Neither Mitchell nor I can recall encountering each other or experiencing any difficulty in negotiating that passage. When my head emerged at the end of the tunnel, Weagle grabbed my leather jacket pulled me into the compartment past the top turret gear and foot chargers. As I went forward towards the cockpit, he disappeared into the tunnel crawling aft. The cockpit was covered with blood. Lieutenant Weber was a mass of blood. He had emergency bandage around his head and was sitting bolt upright, staring straight ahead. His right arm was ripped from the shoulder to the wrist and there was a raw, red wound in the top of his right thigh. I thought he was dead. Thayer, who had also been hit in the head, was sitting in the navigator seat with a first aid kit in his lap. The top hatch had been shot away by an explosive shell. There were bullet holes in the windshield and broken glass in the cockpit. The wind howled through the open hatch so loudly that I could not hear the sound of the engines. I looked out to see if they were running. Thayer pointed at Weber's leg and shouted in my ear, "Tourniquet!" I made a tourniquet out of a handkerchief and applied pressure with the pocket knife as a lever. Thayer sprinkled sulfa powder on the red hole until it piled up like a white cone of sugar. We were still in the immediate target area, 150 miles behind the JAP lines harrowling over the palm tops at 200 miles an hour with a bloody, dazed, and wounded pilot in the seat. He had been hit at the start of the bomb run. run. How, he, how he salvoyed the bombs, closed the bomb bay doors, and turned away from the target, we shall never know. He doesn't remember doing it. It must have been sheer instinct. I thought we were going to crash. Thayer shouted, I CAN'T FLY INSTRUMENTS! The valley was socked and tight with less than 2,000 feet ceiling with scud below. I yelled something back at Thayer. Somehow, we lifted Weber out of the pilot's seat into the navigator's position and I kept the plane steady. Weber was more than 6 feet and must weigh close to 190 pounds. I found myself in the pilot's seat trying to locate the flight instruments. I am not a rated military pilot. I had flown Cubs and fooled around as as an unofficial co-pilot in the cockpits of military transports when I was in the Air Transport Command. I had not even had a cockpit check in a Mitchell. I didn't have the time or energy to breathe a prayer of thanks to Hal Blackburn, Al Mutchier, Stuart Updike, Larry Gerard, and the other TWA pilots and link trainer instructors in Washington but I think they saved our skins. When I was attached to the Intercontinental Division of TWA as an Air Transport Command liaison officer, I pestered Chief Pilot Blackburn to get some link time. Blackie, obliged, put me through the TWA link instrument course many an hour. I sweated under the hood and hangar to making instrument approaches to Montreal, Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, and Burbank with the inexorable crawling red crab leaving a too candid record of my gyrations. It seemed a bit foolish at the time, but I thought someday it might be, do me some good. And it did. Without link time, I know that I couldn't have held that Mitchell in the soup for a minute. It flew just like a link, no inherent stability. It seemed as though we were in the soup almost as soon as I began to fly. I located the artificial horizon and began to fly by that. There were holes and nicks all over the instrument panel where the shrapnel had sprayed. It was hard to tell which instruments were working, the directional compass was shot out, the gun sight was badly bent, and the oil pressure gauges were smashed. The artificial horizon responded to the controls and the magnetic compass was still swinging. The air was turbulent in the clouds and I had a hard time settling down. The wind whisked off my cap and sucked my scar from around my neck, whipping across the jagged, top, broken hatch. The wind felt as though somebody were trapezing were my skull. Blood and sweat made the wheel slippery. I had trouble finding the airspeed indicator. My first fear was that I would stall out after going on instruments. I didn't know the stalling speed of a Mitchell. I couldn't maintain a constant rate of climb and had a hard time keeping a heading with the swinging magnetic compass. Thayer gave me a course. I tried to ask him how far we were from mountains, but he couldn't hear me. The headsets had become badly scrambled during our milling around and we couldn't use the interphone. All communication in the cockpit was carried out by shouting in someone's ear. I swung into a climbing turn to the left try to get more altitude before getting out of the valley, but Thayer pounded me on the back and motioned me to the right, so I went back on course. We had about 4,000 feet then. I remembered those jagged black peaks sticking up into the clouds on the way down to the target and sweated it out. We were still in solid gray soup. Thayer was working on Weber in the navigator seat I could see Weber's bloody leg stretched out the instrument on the instrument panel, straight and stiff. Thayer gave him sulfa tablets, replaced his makeshift tourniquet with a special device from the first aid kit, dusted and bloodied spots with sulfa powder, and forced him to take emergency whiffs of oxygen. Weber revived under the auction and asked Thayer, What happened? You've been shot, Thayer told him. We've had about ten thousand we had about ten thousand feet. And hadn't hit anything yet when the artificial horizon went out. There used to be problems like that in the link trainer making instrument approaches with only needle ball, airspeed, and altimeter. The instructor pasted a strip of masking tape over the artificial horizon. If you got into trouble you could always rip off the tape or throw open the hood, get oriented, and start again. Needle and ball make you sweat even in a link and everybody gripes about the extra work. I spun in at Cincinnati on the link once while trying to master that technique. I recovered from the spin all right, but according to the Telltale Crab, I was 500 feet below below the ground. Now, there was no masking tape to pull off this instrument panel. No hood to throw back, no instructor to argue with. The ship seemed to fall off to the left as I tried to shift my attention from the Broken Horizon to Needle and Ball. I was overcorrecting and going from right to left hand turns. I felt I could hold the ship much longer on just Needle, Ball, Airspeed and Altimeter. I yelled to to Thayer, asking if Weber could fly again. His answer was drowned in the wind, but Weber put his big bloody hand on the wheel and we began another three-way shift. Weber went back to the controls, Thayer to the commander's seat, and I slipped into the navigator's position. The cockpit of this Mitchell is cramped at best, and the machine gun behind the navigator's seat made it impossible to crawl in and out of our shoot, with our chutes on. Later, Thayer and I became wedged so tightly while trying to move in our chutes that we had to take them off to extricate ourselves. Thayer asked for his dead reckoning kit. He had already turned on our radio compass to the base frequency, and it seemed to be working. I found his kit scattered on the cockpit floor. The floor was a mess of blood, broken glass, dirty bandages, jungle kit gear, and remnants of first aid kits. There were two steel Jap slugs rolling around amid the debris. I gave Weber an oxygen mask, and then relaxed after a fashion. I was, I had been sweating like a horse. Despite the cold wind blowing through the cockpit, I felt salty sweat running into my eyes and my skin was wet underneath my clothes. My mouth was full of cotton and my lips were dry and cracked. There were times during that wild ride of which I can remember little when things moved too fast for thought and the necessity for action crowded everything else out of my mind. At other times, every detail stood out and clear relief and weird assortment of inconsequential thoughts floated through my head. We were in the air for more than two hours after leaving the target, and there was plenty of time at intervals to ponder the problems of our predicament. Too much time. When I climbed into the pilot seat, my only idea was to keep the plane going until we crossed the line into China so I'd have a chance to bail out without being captured. We all heard enough tales of Japanese prison camps. Thayer gave me an ETA for reaching the border. When I went back to the navigator seat, I checked my watch. The ETA had passed. We should have been near or over the border. There was no way of checking our ground speed. We were completely dependent on the radio compass. For some strange reason, I decided to check our magnetic compass by my pocket compass. I still wasn't sure the magnetic compass was working properly. There was enough iron in the cockpit to send the pocket compass spinning, but both compasses agreed. The soup was still thick around us, and the weather was getting worse. I began to fill my pockets with medical supplies from the half-used first aid kits. If we bailed out, we should need everything we could get for Weber. We should be traveling over rugged country all the way to base, and there would be no one to help us when we semi-civilized Hill tables that don't even speak Chinese. One of the squadron crews had bailed out recently, less than 20 minutes flying time from base and spent 14 days walking out. Weber looked as though he couldn't last 14 hours without medical care. I kept watching and the instruments for the signs of a relapse. He was holding a steady course maintaining altitude and keeping the ship as stable as he could. It was magnificent flying under the circumstances. His bloody right hand kept sticking to the wheel. I wiped the blood from his hand and arm with a cloth moistened from Thayer's canteen. While wiping his arm, I uncovered a raw red crater in the fleshy part of his forearm with a black spot in the center. The spot was a quarter-inch shrapnel slug. I pulled it out. I wiped more blood from his neck and face. He asked for morphine. I was reluctant to give him any because of his head wounds and the fact that he was still flying the plane. He held out his arm for the needle and I gave him a small squirt. It wasn't enough to have any effect, but I was afraid to give him more. He seemed satisfied. Thayer picked another piece of shrapnel from Weber's head, just behind his ear. The wind whipping into the open hatch was icy. We were 14,000 feet to clear the peaks. Weber had lost a good deal of blood and had only summer khaki clothes and a leather flight jacket for protection. Less than an hour before, we had been sweltering in tropical heat. Weber began to shiver violently his head and body shook and moans slipped from his body bloody lips. We had nothing to which to cover him. The weather was still getting worse. Thayer and I had been thinking about how we could all bail out. I asked Weber at intervals how he felt. He grunted. Okay. But he looked terrible. Where there was no blood, his face was a dead gray. His head was was a mess of clotted, bloody hair and sulfa powder. His leg had not bled much. We knew we should need some time to get everybody out of the ship. We were afraid that Weber might suddenly collapse over the wheel. There were two crewmen aft to be warned, and we would have to get Weber out while we kept the plane stable. Weber wasn't using his right arm much for flying And we doubted if he had enough strength left in it to pull a ripcord. If we pushed him through the open top hatch, he would face the turret, tail fins, and props, any one of which would be enough to finish him. It didn't seem possible to get him and his chute out of the cockpit past the navigator's machine gun to the bottom escape hatch. If If he suddenly slumped over the controls, we should dive in before anybody could get out. Thayer came forward to the navigator's seat to try to spot landmarks if we found a hole in the overcast. We seemed to be heading for a darker cloud mass. I thought we were going to hit a mountain. It looked blue-black through the soup with a wisp of white mist drifting lazily past. The way the China peaks loom through thin spots in the clouds. It was a thunderstorm. We flew straight through its center. About the time Weber ran out of oxygen and there was no other outlet, he could reach the cockpit. The radio compass needle did a 180. We thought we were over the haze. We thought we were over the base. Then it did a 360 and danced gaily around the dial. The storm had knocked it out. Lightning also damaged the liaison receiver. It got black as night. Lightning flashes split the gloom ahead. The rumble of thunder sounded deep below the wind and engines. Freezing rain began to pour into the cockpit. Weber began to shake again and bent forward to escape the driving rain. It looked as though he were going to pass out over the wheel, but he kept flying steadily with only needle and ball and the increasing turbulence. Rain turned to hail, stinging our cheeks and necks and beating the metal skin of the plane in a demonic tattoo. I have overheard such tremendous, ominous chords as came out of the shrieking, howling wind, clattering hail, and rumbling thunder. Only the faint bass roar of the engines penetrating the fury of the other sounds seemed reassuring. The ship the ship bounced around like a rubber ball, but Weber hung on grimly. I could see the rate of climb indicators swinging up and down. Thayer said the altimeter was registering gains and losses of 4,000 feet at a swoop. We must have been in the roaring up and down drafts in the black part of the storm. Weber kept fighting it. He asked us if we wanted to bail out. Sh- we had been preparing for that ever since we crossed the border into China. I had cleared the cartridge casings and gear from the bottom hatch cover, slid the cover back, and removed the emergency release guard. I had my hand on that red release handle for almost every second we were in the storm. We still couldn't figure out how to get Weber out safely, so we told him we would sweat it out. The more he fought, the better he seemed to get. I've never seen such sheer guts as the way Weber fought that storm. It would have been a rough job under normal conditions, but suffering from wounds, loss of blood, shock, and lack of oxygen, racked by chills, with only one good arm and leg, and with only the needle, ball, airspeed, and altimeter to fly by, it was incredible. I could hardly stand up as the ship twisted and dived. Time and again, I was thrown to the floor and pinned there by the centrifugal force of our gyrations. The hail turned to snow, swirling through the back of the cockpit and dancing around on the instrument panel. I thought, that's pretty, and was hurled against the turret column. It seemed as though we would never get out of that wild tossing blackness. The snow stopped. We must have been in the storm for about 25 minutes before the blackness lighted to gray and then the familiar formless white of the soup. It was good to see plain clouds again and feel ordinary rough air. Our radio compass was still out. Thayer was getting radio bearings from the base, and Weber flew the course, he was called. There was no sign of a break in the overcast. Weber couldn't let down to the massive jagged peaks around the base. We must have flown up for another 15 or 20 minutes looking for a hole when Thayer spotted a small break in the clouds. Weber racked the Mitchell over into a steep, diving turn and spiraled down through the hole. We could see brown clay hills, flooded rice paddies stacked up in terraces along the hillsides, and a bright red road cutting across the hills and valleys. The overcast hung below the crest of the hills, sealing the valley with clouds. Weber headed for a light spot at what looked to be the dead end of the valley. Just before we reached this cloud-fogged cul-de-sac, we passed over a river that had screened the misty green surface of a large lake. There was only one lake that large in this part of China, and our base was on its shore. Weber flew up the lake, just as I spotted a dusty runway to our right, Thayer pointed ahead. There was a large field with transports dispersed over its tan surface like flies caught on flypaper. It could only be the base. We circled once to lose altitude and then came in. Weber made a good landing, taxied to an empty revetment, and cut the switches. The meat wagon darted from the tower as we taxied. I had been holding onto the emergency handle so long that I pulled it unconsciously, dumping the bottom hatch onto the ground. The cockpit was too cramped to lift. The cockpit was too cramped to lift Weber out. Thayer and I climbed out and helped Weber through the hatch to a stretcher. The ambulance carried him away as we collected our gear. Thayer turned to me. That was nice flying you big did back there, Captain. Not bad for a gunner, I answered. What do you mean? Are you kidding? He asked incredulously. Hell, I'm no pilot. I'm a gunner, I told him. He started to say something. A strange look passed across his features and he just looked at me shaking his slowly. He had thought I was a pilot when he called me from the tail to the cockpit. When he saw Weber in the hospital the next day, the doctors told us they had taken 14 pieces of metal from his head, more shrapnel from his upper arm and back in addition to the slugs in his leg and arm. There were 18 holes in the ship, ranging from explosive shell holes in the wing and bomb bay the slugs and fragments that sprayed the cockpit. When we left the target, we never thought we would get back. We did. So I personally thank all the guys. Um, That's a war hero story if I've ever heard one. That entire crew uh, somehow uh, landed a B-25 bomber, which was a Mitchell, um, with an injured pilot. Everyone injured and shot up. I've read this article as a kid, growing up many, many, too many times to count. It always fascinated me uh, like a movie, and i um, happy to share it with you. hope you guys enjoyed it. I know it's a little out of the box, a little out of the norm, um, but I think it's a fascinating story. I think these stories are getting lost uh, from the greatest generation. Uh, my grandfather was a quietly competent man, Leonard Fawcett Mitchell, and... Uh, I wish I would have talked to him more about it, but you know, he didn't bring it up. He was just grandpa to me, and I thought it was fascinating reading the story and seeing the pictures of him in front of his plane. That is why they there are the greatest generation. And I hope their stories never get lost. So, I uh, just want to uh, give a shout out again uh, to that crew, Captain Robert B. Hope, Hot, Hotz excuse me, wrote this article that was published in Saturday Evening Post, September 2nd, 1944. Um, Lieutenant Jesse Weber of Bradford, Pennsylvania. Lieutenant Lawrence Thayer of Morristown, Tennessee. Sergeant Jerome Weigel of Trenton, New Jersey. And Sergeant Leonard Mitchell, Gadsden, Alabama. And of course, Captain Robert B. Hotz. Uh, Thank you, guys. Hope you enjoyed it. I'll share pictures on my social media. Um, It's a uh, fascinating story and one that I thought should be shared. Thanks, and uh, we'll see you again next episode.